This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by CBT Nuggets and Lamigo. On this episode, I chat with Amy Arambolo-Negret about creating and evolving technical content. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 102. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, I'm joined by Amy Arambolo-Negret. Hey, Amy, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you are a cloud economist at the Duckbill Group. Um, so I'd love it if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and what you do at the Duckbill Group. Sure thing. Um, I used to be an application developer. I did a bunch of AWS stuff for a while. And now at the Duckbill Group, a cloud economist is someone who goes through Cost Explorer and your usage report and tries to figure out where you're spending too much money and how the best to help you. It is the best known use of a small skill I have, which is a which is about being able to dig through someone's receipts and find out what their story is. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a, a like a forensic accountant, uh, maybe forensic cloud economist or something to that effect. Yep, that's basically what we do. <laughs> Um, well, so I'm super excited to have you here. Um, first of all, I have to ask this question. Um, I've known Corey for quite some time, um, and I can imagine that working with him is either amazing or an absolute nightmare. So I'm just curious, which which one is it? It is not my job to control Corey, so it's great. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's great to talk to. He really is fully engaged in any conversation you have with him. You've talked to him before. I'm sure you know that. <laughs> um, right. And he just, he loves knowing what other people think on things, which I think is um, a really healthy attitude to have. Totally agree. And hopefully he will subtweet this um, this episode. So um, anyways, uh, so getting into this, uh, this episode. Um, so one of the things that I, I've noticed that you've done quite a bit uh, is you, you create technical content. I've seen a lot of the, the talks that you've given. Um, and I think that's something that you've done such a great job of not only sort of coming up with content and making content interesting. I mean, that's sometimes when you when you put together technical content, it's not uh, it's not super exciting, um, but you have a very good way of sort of taking that technical content and making it interesting, um, but then also sort of following up with it, right? I mean, you have this series of talks where you started, you know, talking about managing, you know, fast, um, and then sort of like now, then you went to the whole frenemies thing with Fargate versus, um, you know, Lambda, um, and now we're talking about, I think the latest one you did was about Lambda's uh, and uh, the container support with within Lambda. So, um, I mean, maybe we can just sort of go back uh, or, or start at a point where we're kind of, you know, for people who are interested in maybe doing talks, like what is the reason for, you know, even creating some of these talks in the first place? I feel a lot of engineers have the same problem just day to day where they will run into a bug and then they'll go hit the all-knowing software engineer, which is the Google search engine, and have absolutely either nothing come up or have six posts that say, I'm having this problem, but you won't ever get an answer. This is just a fast way of answering those questions before someone has to ask it. 
Right, right. And so when you when you sort of come up with these, you know, so you, you run into this bug and you're thinking to yourself, um, you know, you can't find the answer. So you do the research, you spend the time sort of digging through uh, and finding, you know, the right way to solve it. Um, so when you put these things, when you put these talks together, um, you know, like, do you do you get a sense that it's helping people and, and that it's just it's just another way to sort of connect with with the community? Yeah. Um, when when I do it, it's it's really great because after a talk, I'll see people either in the hallway or I'll meet someone at a booth and they'll even say it's like I ran into this exact same problem and I gave up because there was it was such a strange edge case that it was too hard to fix and we just moved on to another solution, which is entirely possible. And I also get to express to just the general public that I do in fact know what I'm talking about because someone has given me a stage to talk for 30 minutes and just put up all of my proofs. And that's a actually fun and weirdly empowering place to be. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and I actually think that's really interesting. And I, and I, again, for me, uh, you know, I loved, loved your talks, right? And that some of those things are, are, are uh, sort of, uh, I put those things at the back of my mind, but I know for people uh, who give talks who um, maybe get get judged for other reasons or whatever, um, that it certainly is empowering. And is that something where you sure, certainly shouldn't have to do it, right? I mean, there certainly yeah. should be, um, you know, that, that same level of respect. Um, but is that something that you found that doing these talks really sort of just sets the tone right off the bat? Yeah, I feel it does. Um, it helps that when someone Googles you, a bunch of YouTube videos on how to solve their problem comes up. That is extremely helpful, especially when you, I do, do a lot of um, consulting. So if I ever have to go on site and someone mm -hmm. wants to know what I do, I can pull up an actual YouTube playlist of things that I've done, which is right. It's like being a, um, being in developer relations without having to write all of that content, I get to write a fraction of that content. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's, uh, and that, unfortunately, the, the, that, that is a, uh, a fact that we live with right now, which is um, is completely unfair. But I, I think that uh, you know, again, the, the fact that you do that, you put that out there, um, and uh, and that gives you that credibility, which again, you, you should have from your resume. But at the same yeah. time, I think it's an interesting way, um, you know, to sort of circumvent that, uh, you know, given the, the the current world we live in. It also helps when there are either younger engineers or um, even other younger professionals who are looking at the tech industry and the tech industry, especially right now, does not have the best reputation to be able right. to see that there are people um, who are from different backgrounds, um, either educationally or financially or what have you, and are able to go out and see someone who has something similar um, being a being a, a subject matter expert in whatever it is that they're talking right. about. Right. Yeah. No. I definitely. I. I definitely agree with that. And. Uh, and that's the. That's that thing where the. The more you know that we can sort of amplify uh, those types of voices and make sure that people can see that diversity. It's incredibly important. Um. So. So good for you, obviously, for for pushing through that because I. I know that I've, I've heard a lot of horror stories around. Uh. Around that stuff that. Uh, uh, makes my my blood boil. So. Um. 
So let's let's uh, let's talk to some of these people out here who potentially want to do some of these talks, um, and uh, you know, and, and want to use this as a way to um, to again sell themselves. Because I can tell you one thing. Uh, I mean, until once I started writing blog posts and doing talks and doing those sort of things, clearly I have a very different um, you know very different background. Um, uh, but I was it, it just gave me a bunch of exposure, right? And so yeah. you know, job offers and uh, consulting uh, uh, clients and things like that, like those just become much easier to get when you can actually go out there and do some of this stuff. So um, if you're interested in doing that, I mean, I think one of the, the hard things for most people is, you know, what even makes a good talk, right? So you, I mean, you've come up with some really great talks. So what, what is, what is that? Uh, what is that? What's like, what's that secret sauce? Like, how do you do that? I think it can also be very intimidating since a lot of the Talks that get a lot of promotion are always huge um, vendor events that they're trying to push a product, they're trying to push a solution. Right. And that usually takes up a lot of um, advertising real estate, essentially, where that's what you see, that's what you see on the threads and everything. Um, when you actually get to these community conferences or even um, when I would speak at AWS Summit, uh, it was... I had a very specific problem that I needed to solve. Mm -hmm. I ran into a bug. The bug was not in the documentation because why would it be? Why and would you put that in there, right? Of course. And then Google three pages down maybe put me on the path to finding finding the right answer. And it's the journey of trying to put all of the bug fixes in place to make it work for your specific environment, and then being able to share that. Right, right, yeah, and so. Um, so that that idea of of sort of taking these um, you know these experiences that you've had or, or trying to solve a, a problem and then finding the nuances maybe in solving yeah. the problem as opposed to the happy path which um, it's always great when you're following a blog post and it says you know run this command then run this command then run this command well what happens on that third command when the thing blows up and you have no idea you have no idea what to do uh, you know and then you end up googling for five hours trying to find your way out of that so um, so. You take this, you know, this this sort of path of you know find those bugs or find that that non happy path um, and solve it. So then, what what do you do around there? How do you then take that? Um, I mean, you you got to make that interesting somehow. Yes, um, a lot of people use gifs and memes. I use pictures of food and um, screen caps from Dungeons and Dragons, and <laughs> that's usually just different enough that. It'll snap someone just out of their phone going, why is there a huge elf on my screen trying to attack people screaming elf error? And it's like, well, that's because that's what they thought it would be great to call it. It's not a great <laughs> error code. It doesn't explain right, what it right. is and it makes you very confused. Right. And so, um, so part of that is, and again, there's that relatability when you create talks and you want to connect with the audience in some way. Um, but you also, I mean, this is the other thing that I've always found the hardest when I'm creating talks is trying to find the right level. Like what's, you know what I mean? Because I, I, AWS always does this thing where they're like, oh, it's a 200 level or it's a 400 level and so forth. And I think that's helpful, but you're going to get people of all different, um, yeah. you know, all different skill levels and so forth. So how how do you do that? How do you take a problem like that and then make it relatable? There are or understandable, be... probably. Yeah, you know, find totally. that right level. 
the way I see it, there's going to be at least one person of these two types in the room that are not going to be your target audience. Someone who doesn't know what you're talking about, but sees that a tool that they're considering is going to pose a problem and they want to know how difficult it is to fix it. Or there's going to be a business person who has no technical background right. and they just want to know if what they're evaluating is worth evaluating. If this error is going to be so difficult to narrow down and try to um, resolve that, yes, why would we go through something that I have that my engineers are going to spend hours to try to fix something that's essentially a configuration issue? So when I write any section of a talk, I make sure that it addresses a person who may not have come into that with that exact problem in mind. Mm -hmm. For the people who have, they'll understand the, in animation it's called key images, where there are very specific slots where you understand the topic of what is happening and the context around it. And I always produce more verbose notes that go with my presentation. I usually release it either at the end of the day or later on that week, once everyone mm -hmm. has had time to settle. And, and it provides a tutorial-esque um, experience where this is what you saw. This is how you would actually do it if you were in front of a screen. Yeah. There are people who go to technical talks with a laptop on their lap because they're also working while they're trying to do it. Right. But most of the time, they're not going to have that the console open while you're walking through the demo. So how are right. you going to address that issue? It's just right. easier that way. Yeah, and and I like that I like that idea too of of uh, I know I try to do like high level bullet points and then talk about the bullet point because one thing that I try to do and I don't know I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Um, here I am picking your brain trying to make my own talks better. Um, but like basically, you know. I do a bullet point and then I talk through it and I actually animate the bullet points coming in. So I, 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 I'm not a huge fan of showing an entire slide um, with all the bullet points and then letting people read ahead. I sort of bring a bullet point in, talk about the bullet point, bring another bullet point in. Um, is that something you recommend doing too? Or do you just kind of present, you know, sort of all the concepts and then, and then walk people through it? I think it depends. Um, I tend to have very dense slides, which is not great for reading, especially if you're several rows back. Yeah, um, right. And I truly understand that. But the way I see it, because I also talk very fast when I'm when I'm on stage that um, I want there to be enough context around what's happening so that if I gloss over a concept, then you visually can understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, that said, if that's because the entire um, bullet block on my slide is going to be about a very specific thing that's happening. So it's not something that you have to view step by step. Now, I do have a few where, especially in a more workshop scenario where you're going, I want you to think about this first and then go on to this next concept. I totally hide stuff. Um, yeah. I just discovered for a talk that I was constructing the other day that there's an animation that drops them down like index cards. And that's mm -hmm. now my favorite animation right now. <laughs> um, so when you're, when you're doing that, um, uh, cause this is the other thing just for people who have ever, if you, if you're out there and you've ever written a talk or, or you've, or you've given a, a talk, um, it, it, the first iteration of it is never, 
is never going to be the right one, right? You have to go through and you have to sort of revise. Um, and, and it's sort of weird, and I don't know, maybe you felt this way too, in the pre-pandemic world, when you would give talks in person, um, most of the time, you know, you'd give it to a relatively small audience, a couple hundred people or whatever, um, as opposed to now when we do talks, uh, you know, post-pandemic and they're online, it's like they're immediately available online. So it's hard to give the same talk over and over and over and over again without somebody potentially having uh, seen it. And a lot of work goes into a single talk. So not being able to use the same talk over and over again um, is is not great. Um, But like how do you refine it? Is it something that you test with, you know, you tested it with a live audience or do you, um, you know, do you use like a family member or a friend or a colleague? Like, how do you, how do you test and refine your, uh, your, your talks? I'm actually an organizer at a meetup group and specifically built around giving um, people of marginalized gender identities and a, a place to stage and write technical content. It is a very oh. specific audience, <laughs> I <can imagine>. but <laughs> but it is um, it addresses that issue I had earlier about visibility. It also right. does help you if you're if you don't have a lot of contacts in this industry. Um, just as an aside, technical speaking is a great way to do it because everyone loves talking to each other after the stress has worn off and you become (laughs) the friendliest person after you've done that. Um, But also there are meetup groups out there specifically about doing um, um, technical feedback or either or just general speaking feedback. If you want to do something general, um, Toastmasters is a great organization to do. Mm -hmm. Um, If you want to do strictly technical um, if you do any cloud-related stuff, the DevOps communities are super friendly, even if it's not specifically about DevOps. I'm not a DevOps person, but I have a lot of DevOps friends. Some of my best friends are DevOps people. And um, they'll, it's like you can get on a, on a meetup or, or a Zoom call and just burn through your slides for about 10 or 15 minutes and see your friends will be very honest with you. In a small group. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, one of the things I did notice, too, um, giving a speech in person or giving a talk in person versus giving a talk via Zoom call um, is sometimes uh, when you don't hear any laughs or chuckles from a little joke that you make in there, it it, uh, <laughs> it, it can feel very lonely in that space after you're, you know, you're waiting for you're waiting for something in there. But um, it's, it's, it's a little bit It's worse when there are people in the room. I and they don't laugh, it right? Yeah. So much <laughs> <That's>, worse. <laughs> that is very true. If something falls flat, right. Yeah, that is that's a good point. Hi, everyone. I just want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, CBT Nuggets. Now, if you're an IT professional or a developer like me, you know how important it is to constantly be learning new skills to keep up with the latest trends. Now, sometimes a blog post or a YouTube tutorial can get you started, but if I really want to upskill, nothing compares to professional training from experts you can trust. And with CBT Nuggets, I have access to more than 400 courses and over 4,000 hours of professional training. And with a 100% in-house training team, they add 40 hours of new training every Every week. Now, their courses feature topics ranging from building serverless apps with Lambda and DynamoDB to certification-focused training for AWS, Microsoft, Linux, and more. And CBT Nuggets also offers virtual labs so you can practice your new skills as you're learning them. 
They also have accountability coaching, which lets you talk to a real person to create custom learning paths to set goals and keep you accountable. So whether you're a developer looking to sharpen your skills or a team looking to level up together, you can try CBT Nuggets for free for seven days thanks to their free trial offer. Just visit cbtnuggets.com serverless and sign up to get started. So, so how, you know, just going back to more, um, this idea of, of, you know, creating good talks and, and what makes a good talk, um, you know, where do you find, you mentioned like, you know, it maybe for it's a vendor conference or something like that. And, and you try to, you know, maybe install the vendor stuff and you find the bugs and so forth, but like, are there any other places that you get inspiration from, or, um, you know, where, like, are there any resources you use to, to sort of build some of these talks? Again, the communities help. The communities will tell you really it's like, I don't understand this thing. Can someone like hop on a call with me for, for a real quick minute and explain why this concept is so hard? And that's mm-hmm. a good, that's a very good place to base a talk off. Um, as far as making them engaging and interesting, I tend to clone video gaming videos just because yeah. that's what I watch. <laughs> so I know if it's going to be interesting to me, then it, it will probably be at least different than the content that's out there. Right, right. Yeah, I, that, I, that's, a, that's a good way to sort of think of things too, is if it's, if it's something that you find interesting, chances are there are lots of other people that yeah. will, will find that interesting. So, um, all right, so let's go on, go back to sort of just, you know, this idea of, of creating new talks. And you had mentioned this idea of, you know, again, finding the bugs and so forth. But um, one of the things that I think we, we see quite a bit is always that, um, that bleeding edge stuff, right? Like people are always want to write content yeah. about something new that happened. And, and I'm guilty of this. I would, I would think, you know, from serverless standpoint, where you sort of talking about things that are like really, really yeah. like bleeding edge. Um, and it's useful and they're interesting. And certainly, you know, if you go to a conference about serverless, then it's really nice to see, you know, yeah. these talks and what might be possible. Um, but sometimes when you're going to, you know, more practical, uh, type things, like again, even like DevOps days and some of those other things. Um, I think you've got a lot of attend attendees or, or talk listeners who are looking for very practical um, advice. So I guess the question is, is like, you know, how do you, um, you know, how do you, you know, sort of take a, a new piece of content, one of these problems, whatever it is, um, or, or and I, I mean, I guess, how do you keep finding new content is probably the, the better way to ask that question. Oof. Um, well, to just roll back just a little bit. So my problem with bleeding edge content, I love watching it, but bleeding edge content will almost always be a product demo because mm. it's someone who developed a new solution and they want to share with everybody, which is just going to walk you through how it, how it's used, which is great, except, and this is just a nature of what the cloud um, industry is like, all of this stuff changes day to day. So these tools may not be actable in a few months, or they may become the new standards. There's no way to tell until you're already six feet and six months out. And by then it's, they've already gone through several product revisions. I once did a talk where I was talking about best practices and AWS released their updated best practices the day before my talk. And I had to update three slides. It was, it threw off my timing. It was great. Um, But that, and that's just one of those kind of pitfalls that you have to roll with. As far as 
getting new content though, especially if you're deal, it depends who your audience is because my audience j tends to be, um, either like ICs or tech and technical leads. And by then you're usually in a company. If you're not developing these leading edge solutions, you're just using the tools that's out there already. Mm -hmm. So, um, like you had brought up my, my serverless frenemies, which is still my favorite title of any talk that I've ever made. <laughs> um, because when I did the managing containers one and I love all my DevRel friends, but they all got into my mentions about why don't you just use Fargate? If you're at, at the containerization stage, why don't you just use Fargate? Like, cause it's right. not even close to the same thing. It is closer to <laughs> Kubernetes than it is to Lambda. And I'm looking for a Lambda like solution. So that's what that whole deal was about. And I was able to stretch that out into, I think, 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> because Twitter will tell you what's wrong, whether oh, or not oh, it's yeah. accurate or not. <laughs> Right, exactly. And whether or not yeah, they're no. actually your friends. They are my yeah, friends, Twitter, but come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Twitter Twitter can be can definitely be brutal. Um so I think that, you know, and, and maybe unpack a little bit what you were sort of saying is you're creating content um around existing tools. Um yeah. and so I mean, as as you sort of, uh, you know, if you're or or one way to do it is is to, you know, you're using existing tools, you're creating content around that, or you can create content around that. Um, you know, looking at those solutions, um, you know, you introduce a new solution to something, or you're even using an existing tool. Um, nothing's perfect, right? So you had mentioned that idea of bugs and so forth, but just like you know. I guess new solutions or you know, or just solutions in general, um, maybe higher level abstractions, everything creates some new type of problem that you have to deal with. Yeah. Um, and that's probably a pretty effective way to, to, to sort of generate new content. It is. Um, if you ever have to write down an RCA <laughs> or <laughs> which for those who have not had the pleasure of doing one is called a root cause analysis where you took down produ right. production and you had to explain why. Right. Um, yep. And, or you ever did this hopefully in stage or hopefully in development where you ran into a situation where, I don't know, I had a situation once where a Lambda would not delete itself. Um, I call it my Skynet problem where it just hit a, <laughs> a stage where it was both trying to save and delete at the same time. Mm. And it would, it would lock itself and I had to destroy the entire stack and send that command several times just to make that, that force that command through. If you ever have a problem like that, that is a thing that you write up instantly and then you turn it into slide decks and then you put, right. you go to Slides Carnival, you throw a very flashy background on it and next thing you know, you have a TED talk or a technical right. talk. Right. Uh, yeah. And the other thing too is um, I find use cases to be an interesting, you know, just like, and, and non-traditional use cases are kind of fun too. Like how can yeah. I use this in a way that it wasn't meant to be used and do something I love with that. those. Those are my favorite. I love right. watching people um, break away from what the tutorial says you have to do. And I'm going to get a little weird with it. And that to me is totally fascinating. Um, when the whole... Um, I fed these scripts into a computer th meme came out. I thought that was super fascinating because that was something a company I had worked for did. They, um, they used analytics. I used to work for, um, fantasy sports to write 
um, color commentary for your fantasy football team. Mm-hmm. And they would send it out. So if you did really well, you would get a really raving review. And if you did uh-huh. really poorly, you would get roasted by a computer. And then that gets sent <laughs> to everyone in the league. And it's hilarious. But that is not a thing that you would just assume a computer would do. It's just write right. um, hot takes on your fancy football team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, no, that's that. Yeah, Sorry, go it, ahead. it's so much fun. I love yeah. I love watching people get weird with the tools that are there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so there are times where you could, um, you could do something like that. You could maybe create a content around, you know, some strange use case or whatever. And I, I love that idea of getting weird with that. Um, the, the, the other part of it though, is that like, I guess if you're, um, if you're sitting through a talk and it's some super interesting problem that you're listening to, um, and again, I don't know, maybe it's a, a some database replication thing that you're just really into, whatever, um, that makes sense. But I think the majority of problems that developers have um, are not that interesting. They're just frustrating, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and probably the worst thing to do is wanting to sit through a talk that talks about some frustrating issue you have. Um, so is there is there a way to basically say, look, I, I have a problem that I uh, I want to talk about. Um, it's not a very interesting, uh, you know, it's not it's not the most interesting problem, but how how can you sort of how can you sort of flip that and and take a, a problem that's not interesting and make it interesting? So the managing containers and the um and the frenemies talk was all based off of a bin library error from within the um, Lambda AMI. And mm-hmm. That on paper is extremely boring and should be a thing that you can easily look up. It is not. Um, so when I went around trying to make tracking down library errors interesting, <laughs> just saying it <laughs> is very slow and very, and can right. kind of drain the energy out of your voice. But I'm, I just, I put a lot of energy into my work in general. And that's just how I had to approach building these talks. It's like, you know what? I like what I do just generally. And when I try to explain what I do to people, it sounds super boring. And I, and I own that. And now I'm doing with spreadsheets, which is much, much worse. (laughs) Um, But when I tell people, it's like, it's not about the error itself. It's the, about everything that happened to make this er- one particular error happen. Mm-hmm. The reason why this error happened was because Lambda uses AWS's um, very specific Linux at AMI when they did not used to. And they left stuff out for either security or performance purposes. And mm-hmm. whether or not we as a group agree with that, that's just a decision. That's a business decision that they made. So how does their business decision affect your future business decisions and your future technical ones? Well, that becomes a way more interesting conversation because it's like, we know this is going to break at this part. Do we still want to use SSH? Do we still need it for this reason? Yeah. And then you can approach it more from a narrative standpoint of, I wait, I wasted way too much time with this. Um, did I need to? It's like, well, you shouldn't have. This this should not have happened, but no bug should have happened. Right, right. right. So you just you you work through 
your process of finding a solution instead of concentrating on what the solution is because the solution they can look up in your no- in your show notes later. Right. Yeah. No, I I love that that idea of of um of sort of documenting your process as opposed to just the solution itself. I mean that you you find the problem, you pull the thread and where does that take you? Um I, you know, I I think to myself a lot of times I go down the rabbit hole on trying to find the answer to a uh, or the solution to a problem that I have or a bug fix or whatever. Um, sometimes you you know the resolution is uh, is underwhelming and so maybe it's not worth sharing. But other times you know there's sort of a revelation in there and um, and I think you're right with a little bit of storytelling you can usually take that and and, and turn that into a uh, uh, a really interesting talk. One of the things it will also do, if you look at it from a process and from a narrative standpoint, is that when you take this video and you send it to um, either a technical lead or a product manager, they'll understand what the problem was because you did not bog it down with code. Right. Um, my, there's very little live code in mind because I understand that people build things differently just because every code is as different as every person. And mm-hmm. I get that and, I, and I've come to terms with it. <laughs> so this is the best way to share that information. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right. So let's wrap, um, wrap up the, the, um, the idea of, of, of building talk. So what would be your, um, you know, what, what, what are your, your advice to someone who is starting out new? Like what's the best way for them to get started or what's just some sort of general advice for people starting to build talks? The best content new engineers can do. And that's mostly because this is never the standpoint from which um, techno, um, tutorials are ever written in is that as someone who knows very little of the way a language or a framework should work, write down your process. And I mean, the entire thing on you getting either a framework onboarded, how you build an, um, a messaging system, things that people have written a billion times because chances mm-hmm. are one, you, you got that work from someone else's blog post or their documentation, and you can cite that. Um, and two, when you do it that way, you not only get into the habit of writing, but you get in the habit of editing it in a way that makes it um, more palatable for people who are not in your specific experience. Um, and when you do it this way, people can actually see from an outsider's perspective exactly what is hard about the thing that they built or what people who do not have a different level of experience are going through. So if a tutorial is targeted at engineers who know where the memory leaks in PHP are, that, that's a thing that comes with experience. That, that is not a thing that can be trained. Right. So once when a new engineer hits that, hits that point, and they found it in a new framework where you where you fix it. Then you know start knowing where to fix other problems. So that way, more senior engineers and more vetted people can learn from your experience, and then they will contact you and they will teach you how to find these issues, so you don't run into them again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you end up with someone you can just bounce off ideas off of. And you, and that's how you get pulled into these technical communities. So it's a really self, self-filling process. 
Yeah, no, I, I love that. I, I And I mean, I, I think um, this idea of you approaching something at, from a slightly different angle, um, your experience, the way that you do it, the way that you see it, the way that you perceive the word or the next prompt that comes back or how you read an error message or any of those things, um, you sharing your experience around that uh, is hugely valuable to the people that are building these things. But also, totally. um, you may run into problems that that other people like you run into. Um, and, yeah. and it's just a and, and sometimes all it takes is just a tiny twisting of the words, uh, rearrangement, uh, rearranging a sentence in a way that now that clicks with somebody where the other time it didn't. Um, and I love that. That's why I always encourage people, just even if somebody has written content a hundred times before, your content, you know, whatever slight difference there is in your content, that could have a powerful effect on someone else. Yeah, it, it really can. Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Lumigo. We've talked a lot about observability on this podcast, and if you've listened to any of those episodes, then you know that it can be difficult to achieve serverless observability with traditional approaches. Now, serverless comes with many opportunities and advantages, and it also has some unique issues that some tools just aren't able to address, and those issues really need something meant for serverless environments. That's where Lumigo comes in. As a serverless-first monitoring platform, Lumigo lets developers quickly and easily find and fix errors and performance issues, while also giving you an end-to-end -end view of the entire transaction across services and functions. All of the debugging information you need is conveniently in one place, and you're able to set up alerts so you know what's happening and how it might affect the user experience. Lumigo also knows how to play nice with your existing toolchain, enabling you to send alerts to email, Slack, Microsoft Teams, Ops Genie, and more, and can also create tickets in Jira straight from the issues page. Thanks to their automatic distributed tracing, it only takes four clicks to set up Lumigo with no manual code changes necessary. Lumigo already has a free plan that lets you track up to 150,000 AWS Lambda invocations a month, but today they're offering Serverless Chats listeners a special promotion. Sign up for a free account at lumigo.io and enter promo code CHATS500 and your free account limit will go up to half a million monthly invocations. That's lumigo.io with promo code CHATS500 to try it out today. All right, so um, let me ask you a couple of questions about Lambda and functions as a service, because I know that you, you've spent quite a bit of time um, on this stuff. So I guess my, you know, sort of a, a question, especially, I mean, maybe even from a, a cloud economist, um, you know, what is what what's sort of next for lambda and and functions as a service because i know you've written about the the lambda containers but like what's the what's maybe that next evolution what aws did recently when they released lambda containers is basically put it at feature parity with azure and gcp which already had that ability they had a either a function service or a functions adjacent service where you could upload your own container and they finally mm -hmm. released the base image where Granted, if you knew where to look, you could get it before, but they actually released it and announced it to the general public so you don't have to know someone in order to be able to use it. So I what I see a lot of people being able to do with this now is they really want to do um, local development testing so they don't have to push anything to their account and um, rack up those charges when all you want to do is make sure that, you're, that whatever one-line update you made... Um, actually worked and did not, you didn't put the space or the tab in the wrong place 
which is, I guess, how it works now. And <laughs> just it takes down the entire stack, which, again, we've all done at least once. So don't <laughs> right. worry about it. If you've, if you've ever taken down production, don't worry. You are not the only one. I, I promise alone. you. Right. Um, you cannot... You can't throw a T-shirt into an empty conference room and not hit a dude who did who took down production. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna save that for later. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, so local development testing, um, live simulation is a really big thing. I've seen there I've seen asked to do full on data science just on Lambda containers, so they don't have to use um, Kubernetes anymore because it mm-hmm. is. Speaking of um, cost stuff, it's easier to track cost-wise than Kubernetes is because Kubernetes is purely consumption-based and you have to tie a bunch of stuff together in order to make that tracking work. Right. Um, so that would be great. And I think from from here on and a lot of the fast changes, they're not going to be front ends anymore. It's all going to be optimizations by the providers. You're not going to see much of that anymore. It's not like before where they would add uh, like three more fields and make it make a blog post about it. Uh, right, I think right. everything is just going to be tuning from just from Lambda's perspective now. That and hooking it to more things because they love they love their integrations. What good is Lambda if you Everyone. don't can't integrate it to stuff? <laughs> right. If you can't if you can't uh, hook it up to events. Um. So I, I it's interesting though. I mean this this move to um to support containers as a packaging um, as a packaging format. Um, and you're right. I, this has been available. I, I think this has been available in IBM. It's been available in, in Google. Yeah. It's been available in, in Microsoft. Like these, these have, these capabilities have existed for a while to use, um, you know, to use a, con- a container. And again, that's a very overloaded word I know, but um, to use that as a packaging format, but, but moving to that, the parity there with the other cloud providers is one thing, but like, who's that conversation? Conversation for like what? Why? Like who? Who does? Whose mind does that change about serverless? The or security fast, teams. I guess. Security. Okay. It's because if you talk to any engineer, if it's a technical problem, they'll find a way to fix it. That's just the way. Especially at the in- individual contributor level, that's just that's how the brain works. It's like, oh, it's this is a small thing. I bet I can fix it with a few days. Or a weekend. Weekend turns into a month, but that's that's a completely <laughs> different problem. I've had clients who did not want to use Lambda because they could not control the containerization system. So they you would be pushing your code into containers that were owned by Amazon and the way they saw that, they saw that as a liability. Mm-hmm. Um, so while it does have some very strong technical implications because you're now able to choose the kind of runtime you do easier than trying to um, hamstring layers together because uh, I know layers is supposed to fix this problem, but it's so hard. It's so hard for something that you should be able to download off of Docker and then play with it and then put it back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's 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 so unnecessarily hard and it makes me so angry. Um, <laughs> but you can also, um, if you're willing to incur that responsibility, you can tweak and tweak your memory. You can, and you have more. You have more technical control, but also you have more control at a business level too. And that is a conversation that will go way easier as far as adoption. Right, right. And then, I mean, the other thing in terms of 
um, you know, I guess the the complexity of running K8s, right, or running Kubernetes um, is one of those things where that that just seems like a lot of complexity, right? You you mentioned yeah. the billing aspect of it and trying to track costs. I mean, if you're really trying, not that everyone's trying to narrow down exactly how much this Lambda container ran, or maybe you have more insight into that than I do, but um, the the idea of, of just the, the complexity, and it, it seems to me that if you start thinking about cost, um, that the total cost of ownership of running a container in a Lambda function or running it in Fargate versus having to install and maintain, I mean, even if you're, I, I would say, even if you're using, you know, one of the managed services like EKS or something like yeah. that, um, that the total cost of ownership of, of going down the serverless route has got to be better. Yeah, especially if you're one of these um, apps that are very um, user user generated base. So you're tracking mostly events and content, right? And not even a huge amount of content. You're not streaming video, you're just sharing sharing pictures or mm-hmm. um sharing um like if you're trying to rebuild Foursquare, you would just be sharing geodata, which is a which is comparatively an extremely small piece of data. Um you right. don't need you don't need an entire instance or an entire container to do that. You can do that in a, on a very small scale and build that out really quickly. Uh, that said, if you go from one of these three-person teams and then s- there's interest in your product for whatever reason and it explodes, then you're not just your cost, but if you had to manage the traffic of that, if you mm-hmm. had to manage um, the actual resources of that and you did not think you you're usage with hockey stick like and with your bill that i mean that's not great and being able to even at least in the first few years of a company just use lambda for everything you that's probably just a safer solution because you're still rapidly iterating and you're still um changing things very quickly and you're still um transmitting very small bits of data um that said it's like there are also large enterprise companies that are heavy heavy lambda users um and even their bill compared their lambda bill compared to their kubernetes bill is is a it is if you shape if you rounded it down their kubernetes bill you would get their their lambda bill right Gotcha. Um, that's I, I think that's really interesting because I, I do, and I and I actually would love to know your thoughts and 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 whether you even see this. I don't know if we have enough data yet to know this, but um, you know this idea of using Lambda, especially early on uh, in startups or or even even projects within an uh, an enterprise, um, being able to have that flexibility and and the low operational overhead and so forth, I think is a, is really great. But do you see that, or is that something that you think will happen? Is you'll kind of get to a point where you'll say we've down some sort of stability point with this product where we now need to move it over to something like Kubernetes um, or some sort of management or container management system because um, we'll just have, you know, overall it's going to end up being cheaper in the long run. What usually happens when you're making that transition from Lambda to either even ECS or Fargate or eventually Kubernetes is that you're your your business logic has now become so complex or your or your um infrastructure requirements have become so complex that lambda can't do it cleanly anymore so mm-hmm. you end up maxing out on um either memory or or um 
or CPU utilization or because you're um, apparently Lambda has a um, a limit on how many times you can in- invoke it at the same time, which mm-hmm. some people have hit in real life. So right. those are the those are times when you it stops being a cheaper solution, and it stops being a tighter solution because you can run um, your own fast environment within within instances. And then you can have some have a similar environment to what you're building, so you don't have to rebuild everything, but you mm-hmm. don't have to incur that on-demand cost anymore. So that's one path I've I've seen someone take, and that's and that's usually the decision is that Lambda before when it was limited can't hold it. Now that you can put your own container so long as it fits in in that um, in that requirement, you can kind of pad that runway out a little bit and you can stretch out how long you have before you you do a full conversion to uh ECS like um environment but uh, that is usually how it is because you just try to overload or you have maybe like 50 lambdas trying to support one application um which is totally a thing you can do it may not be the best um, even even with step, even with everything else, when that becomes too complex, then you end up just going to right. containers anyway. Right, right, yeah, no, and I think that's I think that's interesting, and I think any company that uh, grows to the point where that they need to start thinking about that next level of infrastructure, it's probably a good thing. It's probably a good uh, it's a a good point to start having those conversations. So. Um, so anyway, so all right, I got just uh, like one more question for you because I'm I'm really interested. So you mentioned you know the cloud, you know what you kind of do as a cloud economist, reading through um, you know people's bills and things like that. Um, now I thought Corey just made this thing up, right? So I don't you know I didn't even know this thing existed until you know sort of Corey comes out um, and he probably coined the term. Um, yeah. But in terms of like that, That's you know, what for he tells people who are interested. He does tell people that, right. So he does, and I think he did. Um, So uh, I will give him, I will definitely give him credit there. Um, But in terms of, of, of that, role um, of being a cloud economist and and having to look through people's bills um, and trying to find them ways to save it. um, That's pretty insane that we need people like you to do that, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's a banana's job. I Cannot believe this is a job that I'm actually doing. It's also a lot of fun, but if you think about it, that when I was, when I was starting out and everything was like, everything was LAMP stack when I started, um, that was, that was a hot new tech when I started <laughs> was a LAMP stack. Um, and the solution to all of those problems where we're going to throw more hardware at it. And then, and then the following question was, why are we spending so much on hardware? (laughs) And their solution to that problem was we're going to buy real estate to store all of the hardware on. Now that you don't have to do that, you still have the problem of I'm going to solve this problem by throwing more hardware at it. That's still a mindset that is alive and well. And you still end up with the same problem, except now you don't have the excuse that at least we're, we own the facility that that data is in because you don't anymore. Mm-hmm. So that and since you don't actually own 
the cases and the blades and everything, you don't have to worry about disposing of them and having to use stuff that you don't actually use anymore. Right. So a lot of my problems are one of our services has gone out of control. We don't know why. And then I will tell you who is spending that money and I will talk to that team to make sure that they know that, that it's happening because there are sometimes they don't even know what's happening. Like something got right. spun up into their account and maybe it was a, maybe it was a test bed. Maybe it was a demo. Maybe they hired a vendor to um, load something into their environment and those costs got out of control. It, it's not like I'm going out trying to tell you that you did something wrong. It's like, this is where the problem is. Let's go find out what happened. Right. So yeah, for forensic cloud bill person, I'm going to <laughs> workshop that into a business card because that sounds way better than the title yeah. that Corey For, uses. Forensic forensic cloud accountant or something like that. Um, yes. No, I think that I think it uh, it's also interesting that you know billing is um you know and the bills you get from aws uh are a leading indicator of um you know of of things that are potentially going wrong yeah. and uh, and interesting because i i just I, I don't i don't know if people connect this um i mean maybe i'm maybe i'm a little um uh, I'm, I'm underestimating people here but the idea that um uh, you know that a bill that runs, or that you're seeing, you know, C, uh, C uh, or EC2 instances uh, cost spiking, or you're seeing, you know, a higher load or higher bandwidth or things like that. Those can all be indicators of poorly written code. It can be indicators of, um, you know, the bad compression or missing compression settings. I mean, all kinds of things yeah. um, that it can that it can sort of can sort of jump out at you. Um, and unless somebody's paying attention to those bills, um, I don't think mm -hmm. most most developers and most teams they're not going to see that. Yeah. And the only time they pay attention when things start spiraling out of control and it's sound. Okay. This is, this sounds like an intuitive issue. And first thing people will do will go, we're going to log everything. And we're going to find out what the problem is. And cost you more there money. is a threshold where CloudWatch <laughs> becomes very expensive. Right. Absolutely. And then they hit yeah. that, then they hit that threshold. And now their bill is like four times as much. Right. Right. Yeah. So. Wow. A lot of the times it's misconfiguration. It's like very rarely does a product, does any product get to the point where they just can't, it's built so poorly that it can, it can barely hold itself up. That's mm -hmm. never, that's never been the case. It's always been, this has been turned off or, um, AWS also offers, um, like S3 analytics. It's like those, but you have to turn them on per bucket. So that's not a policy that's usually written in anyone's um, AWS config. So when they launch it, they just launch it without any analytics. They don't know if the thing is supposed to be sending things to Glacier, if it's, if it's highly, if it's highly used data, there's no way to tell. So it's, it's trying to find little holes like that where it seems like it shouldn't be a problem, but the minute it becomes a problem, it's because you spent twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now you can spend money very, very fast in the cloud. I think that is uh, a lesson learned by many, many people. So. Yeah. The difference between <laughs> being on metal and throwing hardware at a problem, and being on the cloud and throwing hardware at a problem, is that you can throw hardware at a problem at scale on the cloud. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. There's no, it, it doesn't, there's no sort of stopping point. Like no. we, you know, we have to go buy no new servers. Like no one will stop you. No, I mean, just maybe the credit card company or whatever, but 
anyways, Amy, you are you are doing some amazing work with that because I I actually find that to be very very fascinating, um, and I I think it um, in terms of what that can do and what and the need for it, um, uh, it's a fascinating field um, and and super interesting, and I mean good for Corey for uh, really digging into that and and, and calling it out, um, and uh, and then again for people like you who are willing to take that job because that seems to me like pouring through those numbers can't be yeah. can't be the most interesting thing to do but it, it it must feel good when you do uh when you do find when you do find a way to save somebody some money it's it's extreme spreadsheets can be interesting again it's like everything else about my job if i try to explain why it's interesting i just make it sound more boring <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, let's leave it there. So, uh, Amy, thank you again for joining me. This was awesome. Uh, if people want to find out more about you or maybe they have, you know, horribly large uh, AWS cloud bills uh, and they want to check out the Duck Bill group, how do they do that? Um, honestly, if you search for Corey Quinn, you can find the Duck Bill group real fast. Um, <laughs> if you want to go talk to me because I like doing um, community engagement and I like doing talks and I like roasting people on Twitter just about different stuff. Um, just you can hit me up on Twitter at Nerdy Paws. Um, if you want to be a professional, I'm also on LinkedIn <laughs> under um, Amy Coates. All right. And then you also have a website, amy-codes.com. Amy-codes.com well. is the archive of all of my talks. Um, it's currently only showing the talks from last year because for some reason, it suddenly became very hard to find a spot <laughs> for the past year. <laughs> Who knew? I know a lot of people, a lot of people doing talks, but anyways. All right, Amy, Amy thank you again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Had so much fun. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Amy Arambolo Negret for being my guest this week and to our sponsors, CBT Nuggets and Lamigo. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 102. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.